And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. Well, our guest this week is Mark Gordon. Mark lives in New Mexico, uh, although he used to live in New York City. He used to be a mathematician on Wall Street. I'm sure he's going to get into that a little bit. And uh, so anyway, yeah, he's living in uh, New Mexico. And this month, he's got a, an article in the June 2021 issue of Street Photography Magazine. It's an ongoing project that he's been doing for quite a while, which takes place during the Gay Pride Parade in New York City, which happens in June of every year. I don't know if it happened last year, but anyway, I'm rambling on. Mark, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, Mark, I guess before we really get into things and talk about your project and other things you're doing photographically, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into photography and street photography in particular? Okay. Photography for me as something to do is kind of a late life decision after I... uh, Stopped working as a Wall Street kind of trading floor mathematician where basically my job was to alert traders of bad risk in their portfolios and to come up with computerized trading strategies in various markets, generally the stock market. And then around, I don't know, 2007 or so, right before the real estate crash and the world caved in, um, I stopped and said, okay, now I can do whatever I want to do in life. And I kind of realized that there was nothing for me to do. I didn't have a job. I didn't have to go to work. I didn't have all of those colleagues and all that graveyard humor and all those late nights after work. And I almost went back to work. And then I decided, well, maybe I'll try photography because I've always loved art. My mother was a photographer, and I used to spend long nights washing prints in the bathtub after she had finished making them in her dark room, primitive photography days before digital photography. And I liked it, and I got an offer to do some advertising photography at a yoga institute in Massachusetts. And I ended up working there for maybe four or five years. And I learned how to use my camera doing that. And um, basically what they allowed me to do, which I'm not even sure would be allowed nowadays, is I was allowed to go into workshops and photograph them in progress. So I didn't do studio shots. I didn't arrange people in yoga positions under artificial lighting. I just did everything naturally. And um, learned how to get accepted. People, after a while, just wouldn't even notice I was there. And I was able to shoot very touching and emotional moments in people's faces, you know, like a foot away while they were embracing or showing, you know, deep affection for each other. Or in yoga, um, early morning yoga classes where people are just waking up and are trying to focus and concentrate. And um, it just kind of worked. I don't know why that happened, but it did. And um, 
that's how I kind of got my idea of photographing people in intimate and uh, unposed situations. And uh, after I stopped working there, I took some courses at the International Center for Photography, and there I met Harvey Stein, who became really my mentor for uh, street photography and uh, kind of candid portraiture is what I would call it. It's his, his style is to have a, a strong image of a person, generally speaking. At least that's what he, part of his photography that he taught us. And um, I went to workshops with him and uh, accepted his criticism with great gratitude. He's a wonderful critic and um, started to do street photography basically as uh, sort of a continuation of the type of photography I had done at uh, Kripalu and ended up doing all sorts of different things, really. And that's what led me to the Gay Pride Parades in 2015, which were kind of unusually wonderful because you could get close up with people. They didn't mind that you were there. They weren't dis distracted by you, and you could sort of immerse yourself in the vibe of the event and kind of feel it and know what shots to look for and not really worry about posing or getting things going or anything like that. And that's how this project started. And uh, it took place over four years. Last year, no. And I don't know about this year, actually. I hope there is one, but it won't be very good for me if everybody's wearing masks. So, and that's kind of how I got into photography. And out here in New Mexico with the uh, COVID pandemic, it's very, very hard to shoot people uh, in expressive, sort of unposed and candid moments. I mean, people are out there. But they're wearing masks, so all you see is eyes behind the mask kind of thing. And um, you kind of have to guess what they're thinking rather than – and for me, I wasn't attracted to that as a, as a documentary um, subject matter, although there's a lot of photographs of that out there. And, you know, I promised myself that I would never photograph – a mountain or a sunset or a duck or a flower. <laughs> <laughs> but because of this damn pandemic, I photographed all of those things. <laughs> and I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping with the uh, end of the pandemic that I can sort of go back onto some projects that I've been working on for a very long time. And, um, get back with that. We'll see what happens. I mean, I guess it'll happen eventually, but maybe not this year. Who knows? Yeah, I've been, uh, had the same issue. I live, we live in Virginia. We have a lot of forest. I live in a small town. There's not much going on. So I've been, I've been taking a lot of walks in the forest. Of course, I take my camera with me. Photographing trees is boring. I mean, tell me about <laughs> maybe it. Maybe I just don't, don't get it. You know, we have nice <laughs> mountains and things too. And, not like you, but, but, uh, yeah. And I go downtown and walk around and everybody's got masks on. 
they're very very good about that here, which is not so good when you're <laughs> when you're trying to capture people's expressions. No, a lot of eyes, a lot of eyes, a lot of eyes looking at you from behind the mask, and <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the next project I wanted to work on is with. Uh, I actually have to. I've learned that I need to get uh, releases from these people in order to ever publish it. Mm-hmm. Would would be more of an intimate setting. It wouldn't be on the street. It would be uh, partially street, partially inside. You know, in in people's lives, and uh, have a group of friends who um, live communally. They're uh, they're Hari they're Hari Krishnas, but they actually remind me of my youth when you know we rebelled against everything and we wanted to live mm-hmm. equal lives rather than be uh vacuum cleaner salespeople or whatever or work in an office and uh, they're really very delightful young people and uh they live in this broad world that extends internationally that goes to india and large parts of america and um so I have many years of sort of documenting who they are and what they're like, and I have deep affection for them. And hopefully they'll allow me to um, create a story, a photo story. I think they will. They like being photographed. They're very vain. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny you mentioned my My son uh, went to college for photojournalism in Southern Ohio, and we have a, had a big Harry Krishna temple community in West Virginia, not too far away. And so he, he had to do a lot of photo projects. So he went there and he went there and he stayed for several days. Yeah. You know, they put him up and he t- took some wonderful images. I need to bug him to allow me to publish them. But uh, yeah, he said it was a wonderful community, very welcoming and open. It's really true. And the people are very happy and you know, the, the children, even the children, you know, are Hare Krishnas and they're just peaceful and happy, surrounded by uh, very warm affection. You know, it's not only their families, but this kind of extended community. And Mm -hmm. uh, I even photographed a wedding, a Hare Krishna wedding, which was quite spectacular, actually. It's an amazing experience mm. to see it, although the light was abysmal. But besides that, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, that's... And um, so I'd like to get back on that. So that means I'm going to get in my uh, get in my Mazda and go to Detroit at some near point, maybe over the next month or two, and maybe get back to work. Wow. So what kind of... Pre-pandemic, what kind of street photography did you do in New Mexico? I mean, are you close to any cities? Or you're out in the. Sounds like you're out in the country. Uh, we're pretty much out in the out in the wilderness out here. Uh, the closest towns are um, Santa Fe mm. and uh, a town called Española, which is a primarily old historic. Hispanic city, really a nice city, which I, I like a lot. I, I've done um, parades in Santa Fe, and uh, there was a parade when 
uh, Donald Trump was first elected. I didn't want to bring his name up, but I did photograph this. And there was a protest, you know, where people were talking about social justice and human rights and standing up against racism and standing for, you know, oppressed minorities in the United States. And um, I did a photograph, started a photographic project of that and have some really lovely, uh, mostly portraits of pairs of women who came to the parade. And, um, but it wasn't the sort of thing where you can kind of get into this sort of vibrant repartee, which, you know, the gay pride, the gay pride thing was unusually animated and personal. But um, I did that one. And also I've been doing, um, it's not exactly street photography, but it's the same basic mantra, which is to kind of befriend people get to know them, get to understand them, get to have a feel for who they are and how they express themselves, and then actually to photograph them in intimate situations. Like, for mm -hmm. instance, we have um, a cribbage club of some of the original old hippies that we met out here. And while they're playing Cribbage, to me, it's the most boring game in the world, especially if you don't <laughs> gamble. I can't believe anybody would ever want to play that game. But they come over and, uh, you know, my, uh, my wife cooks wonderful food for them so they don't have to have another burrito. And um, I just try to capture them in their moments. And uh, many of these people are deeply expressive and uh, – full of laughter and uh, sort of expressiveness that I would not actually see on the faces of New Yorkers very often. It's kind of a Western, a Western style almost, if you want to put it that way. Interesting. <laughs> and um, I bought myself a camera, a, um, a Sony, what is it, A7R3, I guess. And the beauty of that camera, and I think, there are more modern ones nowadays is that you can track somebody without pointing a camera at them. The eye focus will lock on to somebody who's at the edge of the frame. And so you can completely, even completely not distract them at all, even though they hmm. accept you anyway and are fine with you you can still get them completely unawares. And then, you know, I show them the pictures afterwards and they're kind of amazed. And um, one, of the, one of the people is this, is this woman, uh, Peggy, who is dirt poor, completely out of her mind and wonderfully full of laughter and strange thoughts. And just one shot of her is worth a million dollars, you know. And I, I have no desire to ever, ever distract her from who she is and how she behaves. So I have kind of a legacy of that. It's, um, it's really great. But unfortunately, you know, getting inside like that is, it's difficult. You know, it's, it takes work. It sure. takes time. It's, uh, it's a process that doesn't have a known sort of planned outcome, generally speaking. You know, you just kind of see what you get. But 
this is more and more what I really, really like, whether it be on the street or inside. I don't know of photographers who've done that in the past. I, I guess Diane Arbus, I'm guessing here. Uh, you know, she really got to know the people that she photographed. Yeah, and she did, yeah. And, and although I think her photographs are, I wouldn't say hindered, but, you know, they're taken in an era where you can't get these instantaneous, wonderful expressions because the technology yeah. wasn't really there yet. Well, it's very interesting what you're, what you're doing and you're getting people together like this. I guess I assume that they were strangers before you did that, or maybe not. Is it, do you think this yeah. is something that's kind of typical to your part of the country where you can do that fairly easily? I can't picture doing that in someplace like New York or Detroit too easily. I think New York is harder because people are cautious mm -hmm. about casual interactions. And also people are, kind of overwhelmed with humanity rather than isolated. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, that's true. At least it uh, used to be. Although there are photographers who have tried to do that sort of thing. I mean, I don't know how well they get to know people, but there's one amazing um, sequence that a guy did by riding the subways to remote areas of New York City in the middle of the night. And he just mm. kind of photographed the people on the subways and he would go up to them and explain what he was doing and has these incredible photos. He even has a shot of an assassination on the, on a subway train that he photographed from a couple feet away. It was, just, I think it's called subway actually. So I guess you could do it oh. in New York. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the situation I want to be in, but um, out here people, are way, way easier to talk to. And, uh, you know, if you feel right about somebody, you can definitely uh, initiate friendships. There's also a certain curiosity. You know, there's this mass migration of East Coast people into the heartland. It's been going on. God, I remember mm -hmm. when I worked on Wall Street, you know, people would get their big bonuses and get <laughs> a lot of money and they moved to Kansas City. I mean, it, so, so people out here are coming in to contact with East Coasters, and for them, we're like uh, Martians in a way. You know, we're, we're kind of landing. So there's a lot of kind of curiosity, get to know you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. A lot of people out here have only heard about Jews. They don't really <laughs> – have any experience talking to them. We're actually pretty harmless, yeah. Yeah, or actually don't have horns, you know, and that kind of thing. And, yeah. and would you have them surgically removed, you know? And um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of that and um there's a um I don't know how to describe it. There's there's an ease of connection out here, which I really like a lot. Um, the downside is that you don't have the cultural diversity. You do have, it's not a monoculture here. You have many different Native American cultures. You have a very old and deep Hispanic culture. But at least so far for me, I felt that it's difficult to penetrate into those. And maybe it's my fault. I'm not really sure. I don't speak Spanish, which is an issue 
You know, I went to school, they taught French, not Spanish and Latin. Yeah, me too. Yeah, same thing. Yep. So French is pretty useless here. And, um, and so is Latin. And so Latin is pretty useless <laughs> everywhere, except maybe in a cathedral or in a monastery. And the Native Americans, I haven't made a strong effort, but how should I put this? They do not like to see white people with cameras because of a legacy of being ripped off and oppressed in various ways and, and being spied on. And you really cannot, you have to respect that, you know, and I feel if mm -hmm. I were to steal pictures, it would be unethical almost to do that. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the way in is there. I've offered, for instance, to teach mathematics in their schools in the Navajo uh, mm -hmm. nation, which is a very, is a vast territory, you know, crossing New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and so forth. But nowadays, there's a very strong um, program to preserve the language, to teach the children their languages. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, Knowing Navajo is often a requirement in these job advertisements, and it's supposed oh, wow. to be the hardest language in the world, you know, and makes and makes Russians seem like uh, pig Latin. You know, it's just completely <laughs> difficult. So I don't know. But at some point, that'll happen. You know, if I stay out here for the rest of my life, that is. They need math teachers. <laughs> yeah. They need math teachers. It's true, and I, I'm, I like teaching math. I, I love mathematics, actually. So that's kind of what goes on here. What we did, my wife and I, Susan and I, did is we decided that we would go on a Discover Red America trip, and we took five months off. <laughs> we got a lot of camping equipment which we didn't know how to use, but we learned the hard way as rain came in through the tent. <laughs> and, and we just decided to meet people at random. And we started in um, North, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, actually, where we were just kind of stunned at the non-New York way that people have. It was amazing and wonderful actually and eye-opening for us like we were in a small town on the missouri river in south dakota called mobridge and we were at a campsite and um susan my wife is always forgetting her glasses and we had gone into like a coffee shop in mobridge and she realized she didn't have her glasses and she drove back to the campsite to find them. And like an hour later, she wasn't back. <laughs> and I looked at this group of women who sit around every morning to have coffee together and wives of ranchers, you know, and homesteaders. And I said, you know, I don't know where Susan is. I'm getting worried. And one of the women just said, well, here, take my keys <laughs> and go find her. And that just would not happen in New York or most places. And I no. was, I said, okay. And uh, I went off to search for her and brought her back. And there's this kind of complete trust and this complete sort of warm hospitality that um, 
we really ate it up. We really liked it. And then there's getting to know Westerners, you know, Easterners generally, like myself, I, I include myself, don't have a very high opinion about guns. But out West, guns are a way of life. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they are. And, you know, part of it, part of it is, uh, I don't know. I mean, part of it is psychological, but also a lot of people, there's not much else to do except going hunting or bird watching or whatever out here. Mm-hmm. And some people actually can't afford meat and they need to shoot deer and antelope in order to survive. Mm-hmm. There's a huge, huge poverty problem here, which is really stunning. And, uh, you know, people are living at the edge and they still manage to take life happily with their arms wide open. It, it's, a, it's wonderful. I'm not sure I could do that. But in any case, we met a guy who is an old homesteader in South Dakota, and he uh, brought us hunting. And I had never even held a gun before. And he gave us a one-shot <laughs> lesson in a cow field you know, with, a, with a shotgun. And we went out there, and it was autumn, and there were these tall, you know, ripe corn fields that were maybe five or six feet high. The corn gets really high there, all this GMO corn. Well, every stalk identical to the next one is like twins factorial out there when it comes to corn. And I have a picture of Susan, my wife, with a red hat on. So, you know, you have to uh, sure. alert, alert other hunters holding a shotgun and sort of in the corn, like in a Stephen King movie, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, Honey, doesn't holding that gun make you feel really powerful and that you have a really big dick? And she just gave me a smile and said, yep. (laughs) 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 And so... So it's just kind of this amazing experience for us. And we're good friends with these people now in, in Mowbridge. And, and uh, I love going out for walks with Lawrence with his, with his dog into the cornfields and, you know, sort of listening to the history of farming. You know, I guess the history of South Dakota uh, from the days of European settlement is the history of farming, really. And yeah, oh, yeah. It's very interesting, you know, and uh, so we did that and we went to Indian powwows where uh, we made also some friends because the whole point of the trip, we didn't want to, wasn't to see majestic mountains, you know, Purple Mountains, Majesty, and eh, mm-hmm. we don't care about that. You know, we don't care about the antelopes or the elk or, or the bears as long as they stayed away. And um, we just wanted to meet people and see what they were like. and. Uh, that's cool. This trip has led to a lot of photographic potential. Yeah, it was really kind of amazing. So, um, that's true. I, I mean, I grew up in the Appalachian region of Ohio, very poor. Everybody hunted, except for my family. My dad was a golfer, but uh, everybody <laughs> hunted, and and but like you say, for a lot of reasons, just to to get meat. Yeah. Um, and then I find, you know, living in the East or in the city, people don't really understand, don't understand that 
way of life. And uh, like, I always wanted to hunt, but I've made the mistake of being with a friend after they got done hunting and he cleaned the pheasants. And I said, gee, I, I just don't want to do that part of it. That's nasty. So I, I never started. But anyway, this I guess we're not talking about photography, but that's okay. Well, I mean, it's kind of this, yeah. you know, the photography is yeah. part of all this, you know, the yeah. whole thing of okay. meeting people and uh, getting the photographic opportunities where they as people come through. Yeah. It's, it's really what it's all like about, I, you know. Yeah, like I told you about my son in photojournalism school, he hooked up with these guys at a gun shop and they took him out and he went shooting with them and hunting with them. Yeah. He would have never done that. We li lived in Cleveland. That's where he grew up. He would have never run into that opportunity up there. And he loved it. Exactly. I mean, the, there is a question of how do you create non-studio, authentic, or candid yeah. graphic opportunities if you're not going to some public event where it's kind of like, you know, picking fruit off of a tree. Uh, it's it's an issue for this kind of photography. And I think we've really kind of solved that problem. You know, it it, it just is takes a lot of dedication and a lot of openness. You can't be judgmental of people. You have to listen to them and understand them, get their vibe. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, it's taught, one of the things it's taught me is not to have um, political biases or moral biases. Mm -hmm. It's just to accept people the way they are. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then the photographs come. It also leads to wonderful portraits, you know, that, I don't, I just don't know how um, classical artists were able to capture people since, you know, it would take a lot of time or more than one sitting often. And here you're just snapping something very, very quickly where a person kind of shows something about themselves. And often for me, um, once you get to know a person a little bit, there are certain things about them that just kind of move you, you know, because you're mm -hmm. looking at them and you're aware of them. And there's certain things about them that kind of mean them to you. And then you just try to grab it before it goes away because it's often fleeting. You know, it's not the sort of thing that you see all the time and or are even aware of. I'm sure they're not aware of it even, you know, and um, and that's that's really what I want to do more and more of. And, um, and so there's tens of thousands of pictures waiting to be organized and to be put <laughs> into a story. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I'd love to see some of that work. You know, some of the, the portraits like the, your friend from the cribbage group. Oh yeah. I, I'd be <laughs> happy to do that. It'd be, yeah. They are amazing people. They are really something. So, uh, wow. and I don't know. That's that's kind of kind of really what moves me in photography is these kind of intimate, candid portraits where the person kind of speaks to you, whether they're aware of it or not. I think one of the mm -hmm. one of the revelations for me 
and I'm sure it's true of psychologists in the modern day, is that people reveal themselves in fleeting moments that they may not even be conscious of. And when you're talking to somebody, it's like a video, right? So you may not even see it or mm-hmm. know it, you know, because because you get swept away, swept away by the situation and the flow of time. And um, I think that with these modern cameras, you can really do that effectively. I mean, the other way to do it, which I've done, I'm uh, mea culpa, I admit to it, is you can shoot 20 frames a second. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like this. Uh, sure. Kind of like what Gary Winogrand used to do. You know, he used to hold a camera over his head in the middle yeah. of the street and just shoot without even looking. And then he'd go through things looking for a good image. And you can do that with the modern cameras. You can do that as well, except you don't have to hold the camera over your head. You could just, you know, shoot 20 yeah. frames a second. And, and with these tracking devices that the cameras have, you know, the person's in perfect focus or close to perfect focus all the time. And you can do that as well. And sometimes that works, actually. Sometimes you get really uh, amazing uh, moments where a person really shows something that's who they are. Yeah. You know. It's hard to capture one frame at a time. But, yeah, if you're you're getting 20 of them, you, you, you may get that. Just that, that right expression, one. Expression, yeah. And you can feel the moment. You can feel when a person is uh, being relaxed and open and engaging, you know, not even necessarily with you. It could be with somebody else in the room. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, you try to try to get something good, you know. And um, if you wait to see it, then it's often too late. Yeah. Right. It's gone. Oh, there, you pick your camera up and then it's gone. And, uh, <laughs> just, yeah, just the act of picking it up draws yeah. attention to yourself and it draws attention. The moment's gone. Yeah. You know, like I have a friend who a lot of people out here believe in flying saucers and, um, they, it's hard, you can't argue with them because, they're all sort of eyewitness accounts, right? Personal experiences. Mm-hmm. You can't argue with an eyewitness account. And, uh, and there's that moment where they just like show you how deeply convinced they are of this, this kind of gleam in people's eyes and the sort of didactic, you know, ex, you know, sort of forcefulness. And to capture that is like just amazing. It's God, you know. Wow. So going back to the gay pride thing, something I very obvious from your work is, you know, often we, you know, we see people shoot parades, events, things like that. And they, they tend to be doing it from a distance. Right. But you, you are right in there. I mean, you're in the thick of things up close, personal, you must be using a wide lens. Right. Um, you know, what, how do you do that? I mean, are, are you, I mean, are you like in the, right, like in the middle of the parade or are you shooting around the edges, the crowds that, that are, um, oh. gathering around the parade? 
the parade itself, you know, is is a huge event. Like there are literally millions of people packed on to Fifth Avenue. And these big sort of floats come down Fifth Avenue with 10 to 20 people thick sort of cheering and waving rainbow flags. And for me, that is not a situation that interests me to photograph. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to shoot, you know, people standing on a float in bikini underwear, wave, you know, with a sign on their float or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a long distance shot. All you really do is see kind of body language more than anything else and see the crowds. And uh, so I, if that were the only opportunity, I actually wouldn't bother to photograph it. It just, mm-hmm. but in this case, there were these, I would call them fundamentalists, although I didn't really document that, Christians who came to protest homosexuality on biblical grounds. And they were a small group of people, maybe 15 people or so, standing mm. right off of Fifth Avenue, holding these really toxic signs, or what most people would think is toxic. They didn't think they were toxic. They think they thought they were saving people, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but and. And they were right at a point where crowds of people were kind of walking across the street, a side street to Fifth Avenue. And so people couldn't help but see it. And a certain number of the people, largely young people, which was interesting, you know, like, especially in the last year, a lot of the people interacting with these Christians were teenagers, actually. Really? Teenagers? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Young people. And they confronted them in various ways or, or responded to them in various ways. I don't know if it's exactly confrontation because argument was um, one thing that happened, but not the main thing. There was a lot of dancing. There was a lot of mockery. There was a lot of uh, just sort of stunned disbelief. <laughs> and, and so during these interactions, you could just kind of feel the way people were. And I would talk to them. I would talk to the Christians and, and some of the gay people so that they would just kind of know who you are and what you're doing. I wouldn't stand there kind of like a potential reporter for a newspaper mm-hmm. taking pictures of them. And then they're going to end up, you know, and then, yeah. you know, some newspaper somewhere kind of silently waiting for the opportunity. I just caught into the fray with them. I would, talk about these signs that the Christians were holding with these young gay people. I would talk to the Christians about why they are there and what do they think they're doing. And uh, it was it was kind of an amazing experience. But after a while, you were just kind of in the groove or in the flow. So once that happens, you can get up and really capture what people are saying and feeling from a short distance. And um, so I use a 16 millimeter lens and I often shoot people from a couple of feet away. And mm-hmm. it was like nothing. It, was only, it wasn't that I wasn't there. It was just that I wasn't a distraction. And uh, so I would go up to, uh, I went up to one young woman who is actually a Christian protester. And I said to her, you know, you're a young person. You have your whole life ahead of you. There are all these adventures that you haven't had yet. 
don't waste mm-hmm. it on this ideology and this religion. And there's this <laughs> moment, moment of like thoughtfulness to what I said to her and a, huh. and a few seconds of silence. And then she looked at me and she said, you are going to hell. <laughs> and I said, it's one of the best moments ever, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and the, I don't know, the, the gay people were very mirthful and, um, one woman was talking to me and, you know, I told her it was this old guy and I had kids and she, she immediately tried to figure out what the correct gender pronoun was for me. And we had to talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> so she, it was just always been, yeah. Yeah. And she would be look, standing in front of this guy who's wearing a T-shirt that says, make America straight again. Uh, I saw uh, your photo. Yeah. You know, and he's holding a sign that says women belong in the kitchen and (laughs) whores deserves STDs. And she'd be standing there like with this thoughtful questioning expression on her face, which I, which I captured in one of my photos. She's saying, so what are they really saying here? We're all whores. And, you know, and kind of like actually trying to unpack what all this kind of hateful signage actually meant. And uh, one Christian man I spoke to, this was actually a touching moment. He was a very nice, very good-looking man and um, very you – could, you could see he wasn't used to coming to uh, these protests. And I had a talk with him about it, you know, and he had a Bible on his knee. And uh, at the end of it, I just said to him out of – kindness i said to him god bless you and tears started coming down his eyes really yeah just you know here he is and all of this satanic evil and the satanic evil one told said god bless you to him and he started tears came down his eyes he was deeply moved by it so you know predicting the way people are going to react to things is something i've just stopped doing because things like that happen yeah it's hard to put your preconceptions aside, but I guess when you do, it gets pretty interesting. Yeah, people are people. And to me, to me, I just to go back to your question, when you get close up like that, you can really capture people and what they're saying to each other and what they're expressing. And with a 16 millimeter lens, when a lot of people around you can still get a feeling of the context and the environment without uh, just ending up with a headshot, which of course, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is like always a disappointment or usually a disappointment, you know, generally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, I, you know, I tell you, it's been a really interesting conversation. I, you know, I could go on all day, but um got to wrap things up here. And, and before we do that, I wonder if, if I could ask you where people can see more of your work outside of our magazine. Well, I don't have a website and I don't use social media. I, I, in fact, I canceled my Facebook account recently because I realized that I was too dependent on how many likes I would get on my post. I'm, <laughs> like, Gee, I'm, just, I'm just becoming pathetic. So, but uh, I've been urged to uh, put at least be on Instagram uh, by Harvey, Harvey Stein. And 
I'll start to do that probably over the next couple of months, put some photos up there and, and people can start to uh, look at my stuff. Yeah, when you do, send us the link. We'll put it in your profile and then it'll show up next to your article in the magazine. Okay. And so these things never, never really go away. Yeah, you know, the danger with social media, posting of social media after a while, like you say, you want the likes. And you wind up just posting and posting and posting, and it's like like a fire hose coming from thousands, millions of people. I know. And then you feel like you have to respond to nonsense. And, you know, it's just like <laughs> before you know it, you're on your second cup of coffee and half the day is over. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you're looking at social media instead of going out and taking pictures of mountains and trees. Exactly. <laughs> Flowers. <laughs> and ducks. <laughs> and ducks. I forgot about the ducks. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, thanks, Mark. I, you know, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time and the article. You've just done some really interesting work. And I know everybody's going to enjoy it. Pleasure talking with you. <laughs>